Well, good morning. Good morning. I hear you. There we go. <laughs> Just didn't hear me quite yet. I'm so glad you're here today. Thank you, Ryan, to celebrate Easter Sunday with us. And so we'll take a little break from the series that Pastor Dan's been working on, that Write It On Your Heart series where we're walking through the Ten Commandments, to focus today on what it is that we celebrated Easter. You've all come here for Easter Sunday, and we're going to talk about what it is. And it's really something incredible. It's kind of unique to Christianity. It makes Christianity different from other faiths or movements or religions. Christianity can trace its origin back to one specific event. Other movements, faiths can't do that. Buddhism can't do that. Hinduism, Islam can't do that. Certainly atheism can't do that. But the idea is that there was a time when there wasn't a church, the way we think about it. And then this one specific thing happened, and now there is. If you look in the Bible, the book of Acts chapter 11, the people who followed Jesus back in the day, they were called the disciples. They were first called by this new name, Christians, in a place called Antioch. Now part of the reason they needed the new name was because it was now a bigger group. It was multi-ethnic. It used to just be Jews and non-Jews or Gentiles. But now this group had some of both in it. So they came up with a new name. But the bigger reason is because they named him after the guy they were following. This group actually was called Christ Ones. And the idea was he developed a lasting following because of this one event. It's called the resurrection. That's what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. It's the reality that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And so we're going to talk about that today. And talk about what that historical fact means to us and for us. And to do it, I want to read a passage from the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote not a terribly long time after this event of the resurrection happened. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles. The book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. Or open up your Bible app on your phone or your tablet. or You can follow along on the screens. We'll have it up there. If you want a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you or in the row underneath you. Please feel free to grab one however you get there. Get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 8. While you're getting there, let me ask you to take a little journey. And for some of you, this won't be a terribly long trip, but for some of you, you'll have to go back in the way back machine. Do you remember when you were in school? This would happen, some of you last week, so it's not a big deal. This would happen like at the end of the quarter or the end of the semester. The teacher would stand up and just be droning on and on about everything that you're supposed to have learned that semester. And it sounds like they're reviewing everything you're supposed to have learned since birth. And you start to have just this information overload and your eyes kind of glaze over. And then thankfully, Maybe it was you. One brave student would raise their hand and ask a really important question. Hey, will this be on the test? Because <laughs> I, I need to know. Can I just keep zombieing out here? Or do I need to write this stuff down? I really need to know. And, and I just want to pass the class. Now, what would happen, you'd always appreciate that teacher. That was really the cool teacher who would say, hey, hey, pay attention. You're going to see this again. This will be on the test. So jump back to this letter from Paul and realize that back in the day when Paul was writing this letter to the church in Corinth, like over 90% of the people were illiterate. They couldn't have read a letter the way you and I do. And there certainly weren't a bunch of copies of the letters floating around. Normally there's only one. So one person would stand up in front of a group of folks and read the letter out loud. And this particular letter that we recognize as 1 Corinthians in our Bible, it's 16 chapters long. That wouldn't have been separated into chapter and verse back then. But the passage where I'm going to read is from chapter 15. So to get to the spot where I'm going to read, a guy would have been standing up and reading for like an hour straight. Are you wired that way? Where you can listen to information like that for hours on end and catch it? Is anybody wired that way? Or are you like me? 
and you're kind of wondering, you know, why is he asking somebody to raise their hand? Because <laughs> I, I kind of lost track of where he was. You know, most folks are like that, I think. But the thing is, Paul is a good teacher. So in the middle of this, he alerts the hearers right away. Hey, this next stuff, pay attention. Because this is important. This is beyond the test. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verses 3 to 8, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance, pay attention, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, we know him as Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. This is not so long after this happened that he's writing it. He says, some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So here's the story. If you're asking, what is it exactly? that we celebrate. Why are we celebrating Easter? Today is a great day to show up because Paul explains this is it. This is the core of Christianity. And he breaks this this thing of first importance down into kind of two foundational truths. You'll find them on your bulletin there. You've got them listed. The first is that Jesus Christ died for our sin according to Scripture and he was buried. Now that sounds somber. Talking about death. Death's not that thing that we want to talk about. So last time I checked, the mortality rate continues to hover around 100%. We're all going to die. Death is the great equalizer for us. But the thing is, we don't want to talk about it. We certainly don't want to concede that it's going to happen. So it's just not a cheery subject. We stay away from it. And because we don't want to talk about death, we never get around to talking about what happens after death. You know, it wasn't always that way. When I was a kid, not so long ago, my grandparents taught me to say a prayer. I don't think this is a prayer we teach kids anymore. I never taught my kids. But if you're as old as me, you know this prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. You know what's next. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Kind of a sweet way to send your kids off to bed, isn't it? Run along. Hope you don't die before you wake up. It's as bad as freaking them out about bed bugs. Do you ever do that? Good night. Sleep tight. Don't let the bed bugs bite. Ooh, they're nasty. Big teeth, you can't even see them coming. You know, I mean, that's just a spooky thing, you know? So we, do, we don't do that. But here's the thing about that prayer. There's a second verse. It's actually a song. You thought the first verse was tough. Here's the rest of the verse. Our days begin with trouble here. Our life is but a span. And cruel death is always near. So frail a thing as man. Well, good night. Sweet dreams, honey. Sleep well. Remember, cruel death is always near. Perhaps by bedbugs. But this was a tradition. People used to teach their kids this prayer, just the first verse, but that's bad enough, isn't it? My grandparents taught me this prayer, but I don't think they were evil. They never stood outside my door making bed bug noises trying to freak me out at night. What if they were just trying to equip me? What if they wanted me to understand death is real? Death is reality, but it's not the end. The first core truth is that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and he was buried but that's not the end. There's a second foundational truth, and that is that on the third day, he rose again. Jesus rose again. Death was not the end. Anybody grow up like I did on Looney Tunes cartoons? Long before there was Phineas and Ferb or Pokemon or Power Rangers, there was Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck and Foghorn Leghorn. I love those guys. And at the end of every Looney Tunes cartoon, Mel Blanc was the driving force behind the Looney Tunes, and he voiced so many of the characters, he'd come on as Porky Pig and he'd say one thing. Do you remember what that was? A-ba-dee, 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 that's all, folks. 
Well, Mel Blanc in 1989 died at the age of 81. Do you know what it says on his tombstone? It says, man of a hundred voices, beloved husband and father. But right underneath his name, it says, Mel Blanc. That's all, folks. So that's a good question for today. Which is true at death? Jesus Christ is risen indeed, or that's all, folks. Well, today, let's walk through a story in the Bible, and it's in the Gospel of John, chapter 11. So flip or navigate your way over there, the Gospel of John, and let's evaluate that question by walking through this passage that is really clearly about life, and then death, and then life again. And it's the story of a good friend of Jesus. His name is Lazarus. Now, at the beginning of this story, we learn that Lazarus is sick. We don't know what's wrong with him. We don't know if he's got a fever or the whooping cough or whatever. But we learn that he's sick. Now, I don't know about you. I've been sick before, and I'm still here. Not every sickness ends in death. But apparently for Lazarus, this was serious. This was it. There was no cure. Nothing could be done for him. So Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, they're really worried, and they happen to be really good friends of Jesus. And they knew Jesus was good buddies with Lazarus, so they send a message out to Jesus. And here it's in John chapter 11, verse 3. The sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now Jesus and Lazarus are so tight that Mary and Martha don't even have to include his name. But here, something really unusual happens. You see it in verses 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Does that make sense to us? That doesn't seem right, does it? You hear somebody that you love is sick to the point of dying, what do you do? You say, man, I'm there, I'm coming. I'm on the next plane. Jesus hears the news and he goes, oh, good, good, I got it. I'm going to hang out two more days right here. This is important to me because the gospel writer feels it's important enough to put into the story, so we'll deal with this in a few minutes. But finally, after two days, Jesus says to his band of followers and hung around with them, hey, let's go. Now, there's some backstory here if you study the context because to go back to Bethany, to see Lazarus, Jesus would have had to return to Jerusalem and Beth, uh, to, to Judea because that's where Jerusalem and Bethany are. And the last time he'd been there, the religious leaders had tried to stone him to death. So the disciples are a little worried. They kind of question his decision to go back. But in verse 11, Jesus says this, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. Well, what do you think if somebody says that to you? I mean, I, I just think he's sleeping. And that's what the disciples did too. They took him literally and to the point where he has to explain to him, no, Lazarus is dead and we need to go to him. So at this point, one of the disciples, Thomas, who's clearly the Matt Foley motivational speaker of the group, decides to rally the troops for this trip. Here's what Thomas says. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples in his best Eeyore voice, let us also go so that we may die with him. Would you want Thomas as your halftime, you know, big speech, motivational coach? Hey, guys, boy, they almost killed us there in the first half. I'm sure in the second half, they'll really kill us. Everybody hands in on three. One, two, three, death. Woo! But amazingly enough, because Jesus is Jesus, they decide to go. And back in the day, they didn't have bikes or skateboards or horses. You know, they walked everywhere they went. So it took them another couple days to get to Bethany. And by the time he arrives, Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. They didn't have big freezers back then. They didn't have embalming fluid. So typically when you died, they buried you that same day. Now listen here. If you've ever experienced the loss of a family member or a close friend, then you understand the sense of this. Lazarus' sisters were there, and they're surrounded by family and friends, and they're distraught. 
They are really mourning. But Martha sees Jesus coming from a distance. And so she rushes out to him. And in verse 21, here's what she says. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's a kind of a tough one to hear. But it's one we say a lot. I think maybe not in this context. But the if statement's kind of real for us. Something doesn't work out the way we'd hoped. Circumstances are bad or we made a bad decision. And we end up stuck right there. We go, oh, if. If only I hadn't said those words. If only I hadn't made that decision. If only I'd gone to the doctor sooner. If, if only I would have admitted my dependence. Whatever it is, we make that bad choice and we think we're stuck there. I think we feel like if is the end of our story. But there's a great truth in this passage. It's not. There's someone we can bring all our ifs to. And here in this passage, although she's distraught, Martha does it. She brings hers to Jesus. If only you'd gotten here sooner. And maybe she's really thinking, if only I'd delivered the message to you myself. What if I'd gone and pleaded with you to come? But Jesus answers her with some theology in verse 23. He says, your brother will rise again. Now you've got to remember, Martha and, and Jesus are tight. They've talked before. And so maybe she has some kind of sense of this. She says, I know, I know, he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But then Jesus busts out with what may be seriously the most remarkable statement in all of Scripture. In John chapter 11, verses 25 to 26. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, Let's camp here for a second because this is a pretty big deal. This will be on the test. We can get moving pretty fast through this passage. And we're thinking about lunch or an Easter egg hunt or going home to watch some basketball. And we could miss a biggie that will be on the final. This is an incredible claim. Think of it this way if this will help you. What if your brother was sick and you came into me this week? You came and knocked on my office door said, Hey, James, my brother's sick to the point of dying. Would you come and pray? And I said, sure, I'll come and pray. And so you go to be with your brother, and then I go camping. Or I go hang out at the roads and drink me some Diet Coke. You don't know what I'm doing, but I linger. And I don't come. And when I finally do come, your brother's already dead. And you'd be mad, and you'd be sad, and you'd run up to me and go, what what were you doing? Maybe if you'd been here, maybe if you'd prayed, God would have heard your prayer and healed my brother. So in that context, think, I show up. Then what if I said, fear not? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Seriously, what would you do? You'd call the cops. (laughs) You'd call somebody in the mental health profession and they'd come and take me away because no human being in their right mind would ever say anything like that. Leaders of other movements, other faiths, other religions have never said anything like that. Buddha never said anything like that. Muhammad never said anything like that. But Jesus said it. It's recorded in our Bible. This is God's love letter to you and me. It's a story about how he wants to reconcile us to himself, and it's in there. Jesus asked Martha a very important question that he's still asking all of us today. Do you believe that I am the resurrection? Do you believe that I am the resurrection? That kind of question demands a response. And here's Martha's in John 11 and 27. Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, Even he who comes into the world. What's our reply today? This Easter Sunday. This is the test. Do we believe? Jump back to the passage. Jesus comes upon Martha's sister Mary. Now she comes to Jesus and she says exactly the same thing her sister said. 
Martha says it in verse 21. Mary's is in verse 32. But she gets a different response than Martha did. And I think this is telling. I think this really shows that Jesus is willing to meet us wherever we are. Whatever our if is, no matter what our circumstances are, Jesus loves us enough to meet us there. Now, he loves us so much he's not willing to leave us there. But he'll meet us there. Mary comes broken. Mary comes just devastated and in anguish. Really wailing is the better word. The Greek word for what Mary and those other people are doing in verse 33 is the word kleo. really indicates loud lament, especially in mourning for the dead. So Mary comes wailing, and Jesus is so moved that he begins to cry too. Now, he doesn't wail like she's doing because he's not mourning for the dead. He knows what's going on here, but he's crying for his friends because they're hurting. The Greek word for the kind of crying that Jesus does is the word dakruo. It simply means weeping, silently crying. But I think it's really important to see Jesus' heart in this passage. He loves these folks, and so he's hurting for them. He's hurting with them. Now, if you want to see Jesus wail in Scripture, it's in there. Wait just a few days after this account. Jesus stands outside the walls of Jerusalem, and he looks in, and he sees the heart of all the people, all the people who have if questions and have never responded, all the people who feel stuck in their sin, and they live in fear and worry, and they've never responded to God, and he wails out loud for how much he wants to rescue them, but they're not willing. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37 shares it this way. The passage is often called the lament over Jerusalem. Because Jesus cries, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. See, I think this passage shows God's true heart for us. For people who are just skimming through our lives. We're heading for a that's all folks type death. Some kind of now I lay me down to sleep type ending without ever responding to the one true God who loves us and sent his son to die in our place so we could be reconciled with him. Come back to our story. Jesus weeps with Mary, and then he goes to Lazarus' tomb, and Martha's there with him, and Jesus says this, remove the stone. Now Martha, the sister of the deceased, said, whoa, time out, big fella. This is going to be bad. She said, Lord, by this time, there'll be a stench, for he's been dead four days. This would have been a big deal for Martha. If you read about Martha in the Scriptures, she was pretty neat and tidy. I think her last name might have been Stuart. She, she knows as soon as you roll the stone away, it's going to be unpleasant. It's going to be unpleasant for everyone. And she knows not what Jesus knows. She knows only what she knows. So she tries to save everybody from the smell of the four-day-old body. But Jesus is not concerned about a foul odor at all. He responds to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe you'll see the glory of God. So they removed the stone. I, I don't know how to get there. I can't even imagine the drama. I was trying to think of something that would put us in that spot to think about standing there as they roll the stone away. I didn't come up with much. Have you ever seen like one of those extreme makeover shows where it's like the personal makeover? They send somebody off for like liposuction and rhinoplasty and they get a new wardrobe and a new hairstyle and this takes like months and they go through all that stuff and then they bring them back and their family's there, and their friends, and they've got them like upstairs, and they're going to come down this staircase, and right when they're getting ready for the big reveal, they break the commercial, and you're sitting there going, hmm, wonder what it looks like. Well, imagine for the family, they haven't seen their loved one in months, and they're sitting there waiting. I think it must have been something like this. Jesus says, roll the stone away, and they're all sitting there going, what is going to happen? 
So they roll the stone, and Jesus says this, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. Now, this is interesting to me, because they don't roll the stone away, and Lazarus comes springing out, hey, it's me, Lazarus, wow, so good that you're here, it's good for me to be here, I was dead, I was in the, Lazarus doesn't come out doing that. They roll the stone, and there's nothing, and Jesus says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. That's real interesting to me, (laughs) because how would Jesus know he's not still dead in there? That's exactly the thing Martha said, there was no smell. There was no stench of death. There was no decay. And so God says, Father, thank you that you've heard me. And I pray that I'm not reading something into this passage that's not here. But but I think you have to ask, when was Jesus talking to God? When had God heard him? And I believe, and this is just my opinion, I believe the answer is that's what Jesus was doing on those two days when it looked like he was lingering and insensitive. I think he was earnestly praying for Lazarus. I think that's what he did the entire walk to Bethany. He was praying, Father God, please, please defeat the power of death in Lazarus' life. Do we pray like that? I was real blessed this week, and I had lunch with a friend of mine here in the church, and it was a lunch that she does for her small group. It's a small group of retired folks, and I used to lead the group, and so they still invite me back to the lunches, which is nice. And, and so she was telling me, she's 91 years old, she was telling me that her granddaughter just had a baby. Her granddaughter lives in Florida, and so she couldn't be down there. But she committed. She said, I'm going to pray the entire time she's in labor. Well, her granddaughter was in labor 28 hours. Ended up having to have a C-section. And my friend, my 91-year-old friend, literally prayed all day and then some. And she she knew she couldn't do this, but she loved her granddaughter so much, she offered to her, let me take the pain for you. I don't want you to be in pain. Let me take the pain for you. Isn't that incredible? I believe for those two days that Jesus was wrestling in prayer for his buddy Lazarus. He was praying for God's will to be done. And now they roll the stone away and Jesus is confident that God has answered the prayer because there's no stench of death. So he yells, Lazarus, come forth. And he does. Can you, just, can you imagine being there? I cannot imagine the kind of party that would have been. Unwrapping the grave clothes on Lazarus, glad handing him. I just can't believe that would have been some kind of party. But here's the deal. The Gospel of John is silent about it. Why do you think that is? I have a big hunch. Right after this story, the last account we hear of Lazarus in the Scriptures is in John chapter 12, and verses 10 to 11. Says the religious leaders in the day are planning to kill Lazarus again. <laughs> like that would have scared him. <laughs> been there, done that, got the t-shirt, thanks. You know, it couldn't have been a big deal for Lazarus, but people were coming to know Jesus because of what happened to Lazarus. My hunch is there's not a lot of fanfare in this story because it's not the ultimate resurrection story. The ultimate resurrection story is the one Paul's telling in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the one where In this story, we see Jesus clearly explaining, I'm the resurrection and the life. That's the point of the Lazarus story. But the ultimate resurrection story is Christ conquering death. He lived a sinless life. He mastered life. At the resurrection, he masters death. Conquers sin and death. Do we understand what that means today on Easter? For those of us who have a relationship with God that's by grace, and through faith in the one who conquered sin and death, 
we get what that means for us? It means that when death comes, that's not all, folks. That's not the end. Paul shares it this way in the book of Romans in chapter 6, the first part of verse 23. He says, for the wages of sin is death. That's the result of sin in our lives. It brings death, physical death, spiritual death, relational death. And that's not what we're made for. God sent his son to take that sin on himself, and Jesus did, and he died in order to make the way for us to be in a relationship with him. We can't be good enough or smart enough or anything enough to do that on our own. It's only because of what Christ did on the cross that we can have a relationship with him. We can accept that as grace. There's more to Romans 6.23. You understand that, don't you? It, it reads, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the first core concept. That's the first of our foundational truths. It's that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and he was buried. But the second core truth is the grave couldn't hold him. He is risen indeed on the third day. He rose again. And at that point, everything changed. We should be like those folks who were waiting outside of Lazarus' tomb, expecting to see death, and they saw life, and it changed everything. We should be that same way. If we understand that Jesus rose again, Shouldn't that shake things up for us just the same way it did for them? See, here's the deal. Jesus' disciples deserted him when the going got tough. His followers were disillusioned following crucifixion because all they saw was death. And then, you know, he, he told them he, he would rise again, but they didn't get it. After he did, after he conquered sin and death, and he appeared before all the people that are listed in 1 Corinthians 15, it's a matter of historical record that things changed. The disciples, the Christ followers, they went out and they told this resurrection story. They shared the good news of the gospel and they lived lives were filled with persecution and death, trials, suffering. But they were able to do it because they knew that death had been conquered. They were expecting death and they saw life. That fact made them run out and tell people. And we should be running out and telling people today. The resurrection is why today is a day of great joy. It's why we can call Friday Good Friday. My kids, when they were young, never got that concept. Why do you call it Good Friday? Didn't Jesus die? Yes. But we can call it Good Friday because he rose again. Because of what happened on Easter Sunday. This is what's going to be on the final. Do you believe these foundational truths? So last thing I want to do with a little bit of time that we have left today is kind of look at three different categories. I said you've got to have a response to that kind of statement. Let's look at really three different categories of how people respond to these two core truths. And I really believe there are probably like five different responses, but I'm going to stay away from the real extremes. I mean, there, there are people who are committed atheists. They're committed to another religion, and, and you talk about the resurrection, they just shut you off. And those folks most likely aren't here today. And then there are people who are on the other polar extreme. They're the kind of folks, if we worshiped in a slightly different kind of church, you would have heard a lot of amens, hallelujah. Might have got to preach it. If I'd said something real convicting in my favorite in those kind of churches, ouch, they say. So there's folks who are on both extremes. Let's kind of focus on the middle. And let's say, hey, if you're here today and you need to make a response, you're probably in one of these three categories. And what I want to challenge you to do is, upon hearing the Easter story, 
the resurrection story, let's see what our next step in the journey might be. I think some folks hear these two foundational truths and their response is, I'm skeptical. I'm just not sure the resurrection actually happened. I get that it's become part of our culture. I like the Easter egg hunt. I like the big lunch. I like observing it as a holiday. I just don't know that I buy it. To be honest, when I've heard before about the resurrection, I kind of thought like it was a metaphor for hope. I've always thought that was more of, you know, just a story, not history, not fact. And if that's where you land today, then I'd want to suggest that the next step in your journey might be to do just some more investigation. If you're here today and you're skeptical, and we have one of these per family, everybody can take one, but out in the lobby there's going to be some folks handing out this book. It's called The Case for Easter. And if you're skeptical, this is a great book for you, it really is, because you're going to identify with the author, a guy by the name of Lee Strobel. Strobel was an investigative journalist by trade. That's what he did. He was a smart guy. He graduated from Yale, worked for the Chicago Tribune, and he was a committed atheist. But then something really, really weird happened in Strobel's life. His wife accepted Christ. She began a relationship with the Lord, and he was sad because she was kind of fun. You know, they were party people. And he thought, all of a sudden, oh gosh, now my lifestyle's going to change. She's going to take this radical hit. And it did. You know, his wife's life changed because she was new the inside out. And so their life together was different, but the thing that he noticed was, wow, she's even more fun now. She's even more joyful. She's more pleasant to be around. She's more loving. And this really freaked him out because it wasn't what he was expecting. So as a journalist, he decided to investigate the whole thing. And so he started going to church, but, you know, just for research purposes. And he started investigating Jesus and investigating Christianity, and specifically this event of the resurrection. And he did it with all the passion and skill that he brought to his job. He was really digging in. The process took him almost two years. And as he studied more, and as he read more, and he interviewed more you know, theologians and scholars, and then he interviewed people just like his wife, everyday normal people whose lives were radically changed by walking with Christ, he kind of came to this one stumbling block, this one point that he couldn't get past said, if, if this really happened, if God did send his son and he took all our sin and died on the cross, and when he did that, everybody left him, folks deserted him, even his closest followers ran away, but then somehow, how would these people have been transformed into the kind of people who would become martyrs for Christianity? Because in doing his research, that's what he found. There's historical record of some of the disciples, a lot of the Christ followers, facing imprisonment and suffering and persecution. And he realized, people, people don't do that for a metaphor. People don't die for a lie. People aren't changed by the rotting corpse that would smell of death of some crazy person who claimed to be the resurrection and the life. And Strobel couldn't reconcile it in his life. He found no other plausible answer except that it's true. Jesus is who he says he is. He did the stuff that the book says he did. He died for our sins according to the Scripture. And he was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the Scripture. And after 21 months, Lee Strobel gave his life for the Lord. He's been a great advocate for following Christ ever since. Maybe you're in that category today. Maybe you came here and you're skeptical about the whole thing. Please, take one of the books in the lobby. Because maybe today would be the day that you'd start doing some investigating on your own. Or maybe you're here today and you fall into a different category. You think, okay, James, I get it, I've heard it, 
I believe the resurrection probably happened. I think it's true. I believe Christ died on the cross and was raised again, but I've just never responded to it. I've just never personally done anything about it. And honestly, to tell you the truth, I get a little offended when people say, hey, you've got to have a response. Well, here's the deal. <laughs> I don't mean to offend you. I really don't. But, but I didn't come here today to make friends. I really don't feel God put me up here so that I could just try and win folks over. The idea is, things that are really, really important, we want to hear the truth about. We need to hear the truth about. And I think we'd all admit that. Let me kind of run a couple scenarios by you and see if you identify with this. What if you were going to go on a long car ride? You're going to take a, take a journey maybe all the way across the, the continental United States. And so before you go, what would you do? You'd go into the mechanic, and you'd have your car looked over. You know, hey, check the belts and hoses and make sure all the fluid levels are okay. Check the tire pressure, because I really want my car to be running right, because I've got to make this long trip. And so you went in to see a mechanic, and he gave your car the once-over, and he gives you the thumbs up and says, yeah, you're good to go. And so you take off on your journey, and your car breaks down like 100 miles from home. I mean, what, wouldn't you call the mechanic? You'd call, and you'd be upset. You'd be like, hey, what's going on? You said my car was great, and I'm, I'm hopelessly stuck here on the side of the road. Well, what if your mechanic went, well, yeah, I didn't tell you the truth. I'm sorry. I knew it would cost a lot of money to fix all that stuff, and I wanted you to like me. I didn't want to offend you, so I, I lied to you about your car. Would you be happy about that? No, you'd be livid about that. You'd be furious. Imagine this. What if, what if you were feeling a little run down and so you went to go see the doctor? He said, hey, doc, I'm feeling a little run down. Can you run like a battery of tests on me and make sure I'm healthy? So the doctor runs a bunch of tests on you and you come back to get the results and he goes, you're good. Your body's a temple. I'm like, okay. And so you go out, you're feeling fine and the next week you have a heart attack. You almost die. You go into the hospital and you get stabilized and the doctor comes by to see you. You're like, Doc, what's the deal? I thought you said my body was a temple. It's like, yeah, I meant it was a temple to donut worship. I'm sorry, I really didn't give you the whole truth there. I, I, I wanted you to like me. I didn't want to offend you. What would your response be? You'd be so upset about this because you'd want to know the truth. You'd say, hey, Doc, I almost died. There's some things that you really, really have got to tell me the truth on. Well, that's the deal. Here we are today. Let me be the auto mechanic. Let me be the doctor and say, hey, this is a big deal. I want to tell you the truth about your journey and about eternal life. And it comes down to this question on the test. You have to respond to the fact that Jesus made a statement like we looked at earlier from John 11. Jesus said to Martha, I'm the resurrection and life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's the question Jesus asked. Do you believe this? And the challenge today is have a response. Quit trying to work your way to heaven or earn your way or be good. You understand that we're sinful. We're far apart from God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And all we have to do to get that gift is receive it. We've got to have a response. Knowing about it isn't the same as receiving it. It takes that response. So maybe today could be the day for us to humble ourselves and confess our sin and realize that Christ went to the cross to pay the penalty for that sin. But then, that wasn't all, folks. He conquered the sin and death so we could be in a relationship with him forever. It would be so incredible if on Easter Sunday, the day we celebrate Christ coming alive, 
that you'd be able to celebrate coming alive to Christ. Just one last category of response. Maybe we're in a place where we say, I'm there. I'm all in. I 100% believe it. 100% believe Christ went to the cross, died. I believe all those things in the, the two foundational truths in 1 Corinthians 15. But here's the deal. I really want to see it. I don't see it in my life. I don't see that resurrection power. I want to be fully alive for God. I want to go and make disciples. I want to love and serve. I want to share Christ the way I see the people in the Bible doing, the way I see Jesus doing. If we're honest, that makes sense. We're, we're all drawn to power. This is why I think, you know, monster truck and tractor pull and mixed martial arts, those things are popular because they just scream power. It's why if you've got a really nice sewing machine or cordless drill or electric mixer, doesn't matter what it is, you, you want the top of the line sewing machine or cordless drill or electric mixer because it's more powerful. Oh, we, we love the power. We're just drawn to it. Have you ever done this? you ever stood like looking out over the Grand Canyon or standing on the beach and looking out over the ocean, still and silent, and realized how small you are and how big God is and what you're drawn to is, this is so much bigger than me. Something so much more powerful than me did this. Well, here's the deal. If we're examining our hearts and we say, I want to experience resurrection power in my life, we have to understand there's no power on earth that compares to Jesus. There's just not. When he was alive, when he walked on the earth, people flocked to him because they saw him do miracles or they heard about the miracles. He'd touch blind people and they'd see. He, he healed the lame. They'd walk. He cleansed the lepers. And people were drawn to that. And then what if they thought, oh gosh, there's that same guy and now he's on the cross. I guess all the power's gone. Cruel death truly is near. The power show is over. I, I think maybe they thought they were seeing weakness because of the suffering and the death, but here's the reality. They weren't. They're seeing power in a way we just can't even really comprehend, and they'd never seen it before. On the third day, that was power. If you want to experience that kind of power in your life, you're not alone. Paul talks about wanting to experience it in his life in Philippians chapter 3, in verses 8 through 11. It's an incredible passage. He says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Not knowing about him, but knowing him. For whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Not because I did good or tried to do good or was good. He says, I have my righteousness that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Why do I want to have that? So that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. If you're a Christ follower here today, we can experience that kind of power. Now the deal is you have to take the whole package. You can't just get the resurrection power without also being conformed to his death, without dying to ourselves. But when we talk about that kind of power, when we have the indwelling Holy Spirit with us, we've got it. We've got that power. And let me tell you, it's powerful. Romans chapter 8 and verse 11, this is how Paul explains it. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. 
I forget. I, I don't know. Maybe I can't grasp just how much power that is. But when we walk in Christ, we're filled with that same Holy Spirit power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's incredible. And so we're looking and examining our lives and we're thinking, maybe I need some stones to be rolled away in my life. Maybe it's in my relationships with my wife or my kids. Maybe it's my relationships at my workplace. Maybe it's some kind of addiction that I just can't seem to beat. Whatever it is, can we ask God to come in and roll those stones away? Because he has the power. As we close our service today, we're going to get to take communion. And scripture is so clear in this area. Paul says when we observe the Lord's Supper, we would remember Christ's sacrifice. We'd remember that he died and was buried according to the scripture for our sin. But then he conquered sin and death to establish a glorious kingdom that will never end. And when we remember that, we're supposed to give thanks. We're supposed to confess our sins. We're supposed to examine our heart. Wherever we find ourselves today, can we take this time to figure out what's our next step in this journey? Maybe we're skeptical and we're saying, I'm I'm willing to take that step. I'm going to grab that book and I'm going to investigate the resurrection. Maybe we're here and we've never personally responded to the most incredible statement in Scripture where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Or maybe we're here today and we're all in and we're begging God, I need that resurrection power in some area in my life. Wherever we find ourselves today, this is the time. Please bring that to the Lord as we're taking communion. Communion elements are set up on the tables in the room around you. Ryan's going to come, and he's going to play some music for our response time, and then we're going to worship together. If you're here today and you're a visitor, please, this is the Lord's Supper. It's not Cape Bible Chapel Supper. Please feel free to take part. If you see someone near you who would have difficulty getting to the table, maybe that'd be a great way to serve them, bring the communion elements to them. Let me pray for our time. Father God, we thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to be reminded of your power. God, the opportunity to be reminded of those two foundational truths. You sent your son, and he did die for our sin according to the Scripture, and he was buried. But Lord... He rose again. He is risen indeed. God, as we find ourselves and we examine our heart, maybe we're skeptical. Maybe we need to personally respond. Maybe we're claiming resurrection power that's in our lives. God, wherever we are, as we take the bread, as we take the cup, God, help us to examine our hearts and help us to bring all of our if questions. Help us to bring everything we have to you. We love you so much, Lord. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen.